So this morning we are continuing on with our two-week series on grace. If you remember last week we were talking some about grace, and especially uh, this punchy little passage from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, where Paul is talking about how we have been saved by grace through faith. And we went into that in depth last week, just those short few passages or those short few verses. But they are the underlying uh, theological truth of the text that we're going to be studying today, the part just before it. So if you missed last week's sermon, uh, go back online. If you look on the back of your bulletin, there's a link to the web address to go back and to listen to it because it's essential. It's, it's an important part of what we're going to be talking about today. So as we were talking about faith, uh, saved by grace through faith last week, uh, it got me thinking got me thinking some about what do we mean by saved? What do we mean by that? Because as Christians, we often talk about it. And a lot of us have spent a lot of time thinking about it and being taught ourselves on it. But sometimes we say that word, and especially people who are new to faith can wonder, what do we mean mean by saved? Essentially, what have we, especially, what have we been saved from? Uh, Is it just hell that we've been saved from? Is it uh, just life eternal, or we've been saved from more. And that's part we're going to be talking some about today. Paul talks about in his letter to the church in Ephesus that we've been saved not just from a life of sin, but to a new life, a new life following Jesus. So this morning we're going to be working on these two questions of what have we been saved from, and just as importantly, what have we been saved to? I wonder if you've been asking these questions. I wonder if any of you uh, went home last week and after uh, listening to the reality that we've been saved by grace, if any of you went home asking, yeah, that's, that's great, we've been saved, but what have we been saved from? Have any of you thought about that question? Or maybe have any of you asked the question, what have we been saved to? Because it's great, we, we often hear this, you know, we've been saved and we celebrate, we sing about it, but sometimes we can forget or we can overlook what have we been saved from and actually get into that, actually expand that out. What have we been saved from? And just as importantly, what have we been saved to? Because our faith, Jesus died for more, uh, for more than us, for us than just that we would have a place to go when we die. His death accomplished that, absolutely, but he also came to do so much more than that. His death does amazing things. His sacrifice on the cross. Now, when we talk about what we've been saved from, it's one of the major things we've been saved from is a life of sin, a life filled with sinfulness. Now, when we talk about saved from, many people get that. Some of you, you look back on your life and you think about the things that you've done. You think about the things that you uh, have been a part of, that you're ashamed of. And when you hear that you've been saved by grace, it makes immediate sense to you you intuitively understand what it means and you want to be a part of it. You want to be saved. You realize what's gone on in your life, what you've been a part of, what has happened to you, and you say, yes, Lord, please save me. You hear that Jesus came to earth, lived a sinless life, died, and then rose again, and you say, he's done all this for me to save me. I'm all in. Where do I sign up? How do I get involved? So that's some of you are like that. Some of us are on the other side. Some of us feel like, you know, we're doing pretty good. You know, I was kind of raised by a good family, and I've, you know, I've never been arrested. I kind of, you know, pay my taxes. I'm, relatively speaking, I'm a pretty good person. 
And we hear that we have been saved by grace through faith, and we can say, wow, thanks, God, that's really cool. The subtext being like, okay, great. But I'm not sure really what I needed saving from. We can forget. Maybe if you've been following Jesus for decades, or if you grew up in a Christian home, and so you were just taught to live differently, you can forget how deep our sin goes, how ugly it is, the pain that it causes others and us. We can overlook it. We can take it for granted. We can take even grace for granted. We can forget that sin creates this gap between us and God our Father. Even the tiniest little sins, even the sort of sins that the rest of the culture around us says, like, oh, don't worry about that. That's not a big deal. I mean, sure, you shouldn't do it very often, but, you know, it's okay. I mean, everybody else does, right? Even those sort of sins put gap between us and God. It's serious, and it leads to death. I'm not just speaking, I'm not just overreacting here. We're going to talk about how all of this sin leads to death, not only ultimately, but also even in our lives. So we come to this question, some of us hopefully asking, some of it when we say, when we realize that our old life and our new life, what have we been saved from? And this question of what have we been saved to? What has Jesus really accomplished on the cross? Thankfully, we're not the first to ask this question. Our brothers and sisters, Christians, for centuries have worked with this question, have been wondering, what have I been saved from and what have I been saved to? In fact, Paul addresses the church in Ephesus with this very word. The text that we're going to be looking at this morning addresses this very issue, getting right at the heart of the gospel, that we have been saved by grace through faith. And he starts to line out what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to. So if you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. If it's easier, it's also 2 in your bulletin, just on the inside. Let's read it together. It says, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them uh, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray that we would hear God's word this morning. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. Once again this morning, God, I realize how important your word is for us. The truth that it constantly speaks to us shows us how to follow you, how to understand you, and what you have done. Lord, in many ways, understanding leads to belief, and belief leads to action. Lord, help us to understand your word. 
and then to follow you, to respond by following you more faithfully. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. So today, the word of God has already revealed one of the most important teachings of Christianity. That following Jesus leads to new life. Leads to a new life for us. Now I've seen that in some places, uh, pastors and groups of Christians, well-meaning, have tried to simplify the gospel so much or to make it so attractive to people that they've, they've watered it down. To, to almost to a point of, if you'll just believe this set of beliefs and then pray this, this short prayer, you'll get your ticket to heaven punched and then you wait till you die before all the benefits kick in. Unwittingly or sometimes on purpose, people have reduced the gospel down to this. Just get your ticket punched, just have these set of beliefs and then try to keep your nose clean. The gospel is so much more than that. Jesus came to die on a cross and to show us so much more than that. That Christianity is more than a set of beliefs. True, there are important things for us to know and to believe and to commit our lives to, but following Jesus has always meant to be a new life. A new life following Jesus. Doing things the way that he taught us to do them. Not just believing the things he taught us to believe, but living the way he taught us to live. Paul begins this morning with this, addressing this question, what have we been saved from? And it's right here at verse 1. He says, uh, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's a past tense word. Not saying that you will someday die in them. He's saying you were dead in them. In one sense, our sin is killing us. The moment we do it, in our lives right now, sin kills us. Think about this. Think of something just as simple as, as lying. Lying kills us. Lying, one, it affects our heart. Emotionally, lying kills us. I mean, no one's proud of lying. No one thinks to themselves, I can't wait to lie to people I care about because I'll really feel better after that. Nobody thinks like that. Lying kills our heart. Lying kills our brain, too. I mean, it's uh, that saying that um, you tell the truth because it's the easiest story to remember. When we tell lies, it taxes our brain, trying to keep all the stories straight. The angst and the anxiety that comes with slipping up or people finding out about our lie, it's killing us. And lies certainly kills us spiritually. I mean, we're meant to have this direct and close relationship with God, and when we tell a lie, when we lie to people, it puts a separation, it puts a little bit more distance between us and God. I don't know about you, but... For me, it's hard to come to God and pray and sing and feel right with God when I know that there is sin in my life. I feel like a phony. So I begin praying, asking God to forgive me. I'm grateful that he does. But lying kills us spiritually as well. And it kills us physically too. I mean, the whole, everything's all tied together. I mean, if our heart 
is dying, if our, if our mind is overtaxed, and if our soul is separated from God, it affects us physically as well. It stresses our bodies, killing us. But not only does it kill us personally, but it kills uh, relationships around us. I mean, people that you care about, especially if you lie to someone that you care about. The way that it separates you, betwixt separation between you, it, even though they may not understand why, you seem aloof or like you're closed off about something. Lying kills our relationships. It hurts people around us as well. So, sin kills us. It kills us immediately. And that's just one thing like sin, let alone greed or lust or drunkenness or all sorts of other things. Sin kills us even now. Sin kills us immediately. And sin kills us ultimately. Sin kills us immediately in our lives right now, and it kills us ultimately when we die. Think about this. It's because God hates sin. He says it in Scripture. I hate sin. God hates sin. And sometimes people can think like, oh, well, that seems like really mean. Like, what a mean God. Is he just a cop in the sky, you know, waiting for me to mess up? No, that's not God at all. But he does hate sin. And I was thinking about it this week to put it in terms that that I could understand better. I think about uh, my sons. When I ask them to do something, for example, I ask ask Shalem, please don't take your finger and write in the dirt on the side of the truck, Okay. Please don't do that. I know you like to draw the little stick figures and stuff, but it scratches the paint. You're just grinding the dirt into the paint. Um, and uh, he still does it. He still makes me angry. But there are some things that I tell him not to do, like Shalem, like yesterday we were working in the yard. Corbin, don't play with the axe. We just had a friend of ours, a friend of theirs, who was playing with an axe and really hurt his foot. Um, so I said, you know what, that's, that's not a toy. You know, because he wanted to, go and chop and mess around and stuff. And so sometimes I tell them to do things or I tell them things or I ask them not to do things for their safety. And I get frustrated when they disobey me because I'm like, and then they get, the, then they get hurt and I'm, you know, I feel bad for them. But at the same time, I'm like, that's why I told you not to mess with that. I think God does the same for us. Like he tells us to avoid things that are harmful to us. And then we go do them. On the one hand, he feels badly for us, like, you know, like a father would. But at the same time, I I think it's totally reasonable that God would be angry and said, but that's why I told you not to do that. That's why I told you not to be greedy. That's why I told you not to lust. That's why I told you not to commit murder. That's why I told you not to commit adultery. That's why I told you not to have idols above me. Because they hurt us. But I was also thinking about this too, is not only does a sin, you know, in terms of disobedience, but also sin uh, when we hurt one another. And when my sons, when one of my sons get hurt, or when someone hurts one of my sons, I get angry. I can't help it. I try to be rational and compassionate and hear the story, but I get angry. Even when it's one of my, when, even when it's one of my other son who does the hurting. And it doesn't matter whether it's Corbin who hurts Shalem or Shalem who punches Corbin in retaliation. I get angry when one of them comes to me crying. I get angry with the other. Why did you do that? I can imagine God being the same with us. We are his children. He loves us. 
And so when we hurt one another, and one of us come brokenhearted to him, he's angry with the one who did the heartbreaking, the one who did the hurting. When we sin against other people, I think it makes God angry too. And not just like lying or like brothers punching each other, but the serious stuff, like oppression, sex trafficking, unfair work, enslaving people. God hates it when we do this to each other. And it's right for him to do it. Who would want to follow God who didn't get angry at those things? God gets angry when we sin against one another. So God hates sin. And not only that, but sin is, goes, completely runs contrary to who God is. It's, it goes against his very nature. God is holy. That's essential to who he is. So God can't, as a holy God, just say, well, well, you know what? I know that you're sinful. I'll just pretend like it didn't happen. God can't do that because that doesn't line up with his justice, his holiness. He does provide a way for us through his son, Jesus, but God's not going to just overlook sin. He can't. God wouldn't be God if he did that. And he certainly wouldn't be a God that I would want to follow if, he just, if it didn't matter how you lived, if justice didn't matter to him. No, God hates sin, but because of God's holiness, he can't endure sin either. So that's why when we die, we are separated from God. If we're not following Jesus, if we haven't believed into Jesus and begun following him with our life, when we die, our sin separates us from God forever. That's where hell comes from. You know, sometimes people think of hell as this place where God gets to really stick it to the people who never followed him. (laughs) You know what? That is not what hell is for. That's not what God is like. It is true that hell is in some ways consequences for the evil of our sin. But also hell is the place that we are separated from God. I've heard some people talk about it, like the hell, the definition of hell is the place where we are eternally separated from God with no hope of ever being reconciled to him. And God doesn't send people to hell because he's angry because they don't like him. God has done everything that he could. He even sent his son to come and die on a cross so that we could have new life with him. He's done everything for us to be right with him, to be with him, except force us. Except force us against our will. But that doesn't change the fact that if we refuse God, if we insist on rejecting him, one day when we die, we will be separated from him forever. So that's why Jesus came. That's why God took on flesh and came and lived among us, lived a perfectly sinless life, and then died on a cross in our place and then rose again so that we could have this new life with God. So sin does kill us. Whether it's drunkenness or even something seemingly as innocuous as a little lie, sin kills us today And ultimately, when we die, sin separates us from God. Sin leads to death. We are dead in sin. So why would anybody choose this, right? If we knew this, why would anybody choose this? Well, I think part of it is that people don't know. People don't realize that there is a way out of sin or that sin really does separate them from God, that God really does care about God really is holy. 
But Paul also talks some of the things that hold us in sin. It's in verse 2, he says, um, you were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. There is pressure from the world around us to conform, to fit in. And I was thinking this week about, about how like, the, the ideas of our culture, our culture's ideas of, about sex, for example. On the one hand, our culture tells us that sex is everything. I mean, just watch TV for five minutes or look in a magazine. And I'm not talking like fishing magazines. Like everywhere it says sex is everything. That you're not fully human, that somehow you are less than a human if you are not sexually active with somebody. Something's wrong with you. And at the same time, our culture says that sex doesn't matter. On the one hand, it's everything, but on the other hand, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who you sleep with, when you sleep with them, as long as everybody's okay with it. Our culture is messed up. It gives us all sorts of horrible ideas about what sex is like. It says that sex is all about you. It's all about being gratified yourself. There's tons of pressure in our culture to conform, to think the same way. And that's just one thing like sex, let alone things like greed or pride or self-indulgence or laziness. Our culture has tons of pressure for us to fit in, to sin, to go against the way that God has taught us to live. So there's pressure from the world around us. And it says, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The ruler of the kingdom of the air, this is an old way of saying Satan. In the ancient worldview, there was the earth where people lived, there was the heavens where God lived, and the air in between were the places where celestial um, sub, like, like demons and, and Satan lived when they weren't in the underworld. So he's talking about Satan here. And Satan works to deceive us personally. Many of us are familiar with that, the lies that we hear, you're not good enough, or it's okay to cheat here because it benefits you and no one will find out. Satan deceives us personally, but Satan is also at work in our world systematically too, working through governments, corporations, political structures to cultivate this kingdom that opposes God's kingdom. Any place that, that, that promotes greed, selfishness, enslaving others, that's contrary to the kingdom of God. Satan is at work in our world doing these things as well at a broad scale. So there's deceit from Satan. But there's also, uh, it says, Paul goes on to say that all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. I want to focus in just on this last part, gratifying the, the cravings of our sinful nature. That not only is there pressure from the world around us, deceit from Satan, there's also our own inner brokenness. The things aren't quite right in us. That we have selfish desires, sinful desires. It used to be that we would, uh, at some point, you know, it's you know, self-preservation, just to make sure that you stayed alive. And that gets twisted and warped into self-aggrandizement to better yourself, to make yourself more comfortable at the expense of others. We are tempted. We are tempted in our lives. 
So this old sinful life leads to death. The pressure from the world around us, the seat from Satan, even our own inner temptation, all of this is killing us immediately, right now in our lives. And ultimately, it separates us from God, which leads to death. But through Jesus, the fact that he came, that he died on a cross and that he rose again, he has saved us from this old life. And he has saved us to a new life. And it's interesting, I was thinking about this week, it's surprising to me that we don't talk about this new life as much. As Christians, we often hear circles about, you know, I've been saved from sin, which is absolutely true and, and essential to our faith. But how often do we talk about, and we've also been saved to a new life? That we've been transformed. That if you look in this passage, when you look at it later today, you'll see that one, he says we are objects of wrath. We were objects of wrath, but now we are recipients of mercy. In our old life, we were stooges of Satan. Now we are seated with Christ. So that we were dead in sin. Now we are made alive in Christ. Sorry, alive in grace. But all this comes through Jesus' faithfulness. Because of his faithfulness, because of his life, death, and resurrection, we have been given this new life. And I talked some about it earlier already that because God is holy and because we are not, there is this separation between us. There's this chasm that forms that fills up with our sin, pushing God and us further and further apart from one another. That is until Jesus died on the cross, until he came and died on the cross and covered over our sin. We've been given this new life and this way across to go from our old sinful life to a new life with God that begins the moment we begin believing in Jesus and following him. In the old life, sex was an idol. But in a new life following God, we find intimacy, true connection with people. The sex is not a tool, it's not something that we use, but a beautiful part of marriage. In the old life, people talked about how great it is to go and get hammered at parties. And now, we talk about a new life in Christ. We're grateful about the richness of time with good people, doing good things, drawing closer to Jesus, better relationships with other people. In our old life, people idolize money. But in a new life in Christ, we celebrate generosity. And our integrity and our honor, our character and our reputation in our community is more important to us than saving a few bucks or even a few thousand bucks. We live this new life in Christ. Following Jesus is good, but it's more than just good someday when you die. It means good life right now. New life right now. I want to point this out. In verse 4, if you want to look on your bulletins or if you just want to see it here, Paul explains this new life. He says, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, you don't have to worry about the whole thing. Uh, I just want to point out this thing is that this whole passage is in the past tense. 
This is the current reality. This has already been accomplished. Look at this. God made us alive. Not will someday make us alive, has already made us alive in Christ. And you have been saved. Not someday you will be saved, hopefully, but already in Christ Jesus you have been saved. And God raised us up. Raised us up. Not only the future hope that we have with us that has current implications, but already God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm. God has already done this. This is already past tense. As I was thinking about this, it gave me the title for the sermon that new life is our new reality. Your new life is your new reality if we will just live it. This is not something that we have to earn or even wait for. We have a new life in Christ today. This new life affects us right now. So let's live this new life, right? Why would we wait? Why would we pass this up? Why would we go back and forth? Why would we live our old life and then try to live our new life? It's ludicrous, first of all, to have this new life in Christ and go back. To go back living your old life. It's beneath your dignity. You are children of God. You are co-heirs with Christ. Going back and living your old life is beneath you. Romans chapter 8, Paul in his letter to the church in Rome, he says, you are co-heirs with Jesus. Leave this old life behind you. It is beneath you. Live this new life in Christ. Because we were meant for more. We were meant for more than the sinful ways of our old life. It's like, this place is like a swamp with the sin and the muck and we're just covered with it. We weren't meant for a swamp. We weren't meant to live up to our eyes in sin. We were meant for a garden where we walked in the cool of the day with the Lord our God. We were meant to have this amazing close relationship with God. Not to live in the swamp and the muck of this broken world. Not only that, but when we try to go back and forth or when we find ourselves going back and forth between our new life and our old life, it affects people around us. One, it affects us, obviously. Sin leads to death. We've already talked about that. But sin affects the people who are watching our lives, the people who are depending on us. It affects the people who are non-believers who watch us. They see the way that we live, or they, see, or they hear about us when we talk about following Jesus. And if they hear that we've got hammered at a party or if we've been having sex with people who aren't our, that aren't our, uh, our wife, they think, like, what is this faith all about? Like, you live just like me. What does it matter to follow Jesus? Or worse, the people in our church who are counting on us. That helps me. That's one of my motivations because I think if I were to fail, how would it affect the rest of my church family? What if it came to find out that I had been having an affair? There are people in our church family who would be devastating. I know if I had a pastor who had failed morally like that, I'd wonder if it was all a scam. It's the same for all of us. I know you may think, well, nobody looks up to me. You know, I'm not a pastor. You know what? People do look up to you. People in our church family, we rely on one another to be faithful, to encourage one another. It affects our church around us. 
Not only that, it affects our relationship with God. We've talked about this. The more we sin, that, that gap between us and God just keeps growing. The shame and the guilt and the, uh, the avoidance of God, it grows the more we sin, the more we live that old life. Let's live this new life in Jesus. And so some of you are maybe asking, okay, Jason, how do I do this? <laughs> you know, where do I start? Because I'm looking at my old life and the temptation I have for that and how much I fail and it feels like a mess. Where do I start? Well, one thing I don't want you to do is to live this faith of sin management. And what I mean by that, it's actually Dallas Willard, who was a, a famous Christian, a philosopher of Southern California, or University of Southern California, written lots of Christian books. Uh, he said, we, many Christians have tried to live by this gospel of sin management, which basically means you start following Jesus and then you spend the rest of your life trying not to sin. He said, it frustrates and so many people fail. Jesus didn't die on the cross just so we could claim some beliefs and then try not to sin. Jesus called us to follow him. Now it's true, there are times when sin is tempting and I'm not saying go for it, I'm saying resist it, but there's a better way to do it. Dallas Word talked about in terms of trying and training. He says when you try not to sin, you're setting yourself up for failure. But when you train to follow Jesus, you will become more and more like him every day. See, when you're trying, the whole thing is around failure. When you're trying not to sin, it's just whether you failed or not. <laughs> That's your whole thing. But when you're training, it's all about progress. Are you progressing? Are you making more steps forward than you are back? Are you becoming more faithful to Jesus? Even though you still make mistakes, even though I still make mistakes, are we becoming more and more like Jesus over the long run? I was thinking about this, and hopefully this will connect to some of you because I know nothing about golf, but I know many of you do. Imagine if you wanted to take up a life of golf. You said, you know what, I believe in golf. Golf is wonderful. And you just grabbed a set of clubs and you went out to the first fairway and tried not to mess up. How would that go? You can imagine me golfing. It'd probably give you a good picture of what that would look like. Okay, that's what we're talking about. That's, that's the trying method. I'm going to go out there and try. I've never done it before. I have no idea. I don't even know how to hold the club. But I'm going to go out there and try not to mess up. So many P Christians try to approach faith that way. And it leads to failure after failure after failure and frustration. Some even give up, like, I guess I'm just not cut out to be a Christian. Versus training. If you want to enter a life of golf, metaphorically speaking, and you started meeting with someone else who'd been playing golf for a long time and they showed you how to hold the club, how to swing, what club to use in what situation. They took you to the driving range and you could work on your swing and there's this huge open area to see how it works. And you did that for a while. You trained. And then you went to the first fairway and started golfing. What might that look like? Probably more like most of you when you golf, right? There's a difference between trying and training. I think Jesus is calling us to train, to follow him, to pick up practices and to do them in ways that make us more like him. Not to just try and to avoid sin. I mean, there's good in that. But if that's your whole strategy for following Jesus, you're setting yourself up for failure and frustration. Don't just try, train. And so I want to talk about this, just, just this quick practical way, okay? 
If you want to learn, okay, you know, because you're thinking like, Jason, I've got tons of places I need work, <laughs> areas of sin in my life that I need help with. Okay, where do, you, like, you know, like, where do you start? How do you eat an elephant? Well, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. How do you run a marathon? One step at a time. So this is this, this morning I'm trying to help you or, or provide us with a way to take that one step or take that one bite. The first is to begin by praying. All right, pray. Ask the Lord, Lord, where do I need help? Where am I falling short? Where do I keep blowing it? Where do I keep stepping back into this old way of living? Ask the Holy Spirit to guide you in that. And then if you look on the, the um, back of your bulletin, there's a list of old, old life behaviors and new life behaviors. Old life behaviors, things like pride, anger, envy, greed, drunkenness, lust. And then there's, on the other hand, there's the new life behaviors, humility, kindness, encouragement, generosity, sobriety, purity. Now, yours might not, you might not find the one that you need. You're going to pray and you think, okay, I see the one I need on the list. Awesome. You might be praying, you're like, you know, the thing I need to work on is not even on here, Jason. Okay, that's cool. Keep praying and listening to God. Then pick one and work on it. So, I, for me, I picked greed. All right? Greed. How do I work on greed? Now, I can go through my life trying not to be greedy. Wait for situations to come up, and then when they surprise me or not, try not to be greedy in that moment. I can do that. I can tell you it doesn't work super well for me. Or I can practice generosity. So I can either wait for moments to come up where I fail or not, or I can practice generosity all the time to grow, to strengthen those muscles so that I do not fail. So you pray. Pick a place that God is calling you to work. Practice the opposite. So if it's greed, practice generosity. If it's anger, practice kindness. You get the idea? Practice the thing, the the new life behavior that will undo the old life sin. And then pray again. Pray that the Lord will help you. Because if you're just going to rely on your own strength, your own willpower, it's not going to go well. But rather rely on God's spirit to guide you, to help you in this. Imagine if we did this. Imagine what it would look like in our lives if we stopped living the old life, as tempting as it was or the pressure we felt or the deceit that we listened to, if we stopped living the old life and we started just living the new life. That if we really took on this reality, if we truly believed that your new life, that's the new reality. That's who you really are as a follower of Jesus and we began living this new life. Imagine what it would do in our lives, each of you personally, how things would change for you, how you'd become even more like Jesus. Imagine the implications it would have on us as a church if as a church we became even more faithful, if as a church we followed Jesus even more faithfully so that in moments that I too would think, you know what, I'm going to eat the junk donuts and we're going to take the, the brand new ones out to our community. I don't have to rely on Tracy to totally think of that. Because honestly, it didn't even cross my mind. I'm thinking, no, I want the best ones. I saw how good and glazed and beautiful they are. You know, I'm going to take the ones where the chocolate's all smeared inside the box. I'm going to take those out to people. And yet Tracy's the one who said, no, no, no. Like, let's eat the junk ones. They're all going to, as Colleen, as you said, they're all going to taste the same. We eat the junk ones and take the good ones to our community. Imagine if we continue to grow like that as we follow Jesus more faithfully. And imagine the implications that has in our community 
when the people around us see this church as not just a place where religious people can come and sing and pray, but this church actually is growing and cultivating God's kingdom, doing things to bless people in our community. It has tangible things, things that actually show up in their life, whether it's helping their kids or providing a food hamper for them when they don't have food to eat. Your new life, it's your new reality. Let us pray, pick a place, and practice these new life behaviors and then pray that God would work in us. New life is your new reality. Amen.